Art of Neighboring is the series that we are in, um, and we're going to give you a, a, a break from the test this week. Uh, some of you have been studying hard, I know, and you're, so you're disappointed. I can just see it, right? You're disappointed. Uh, we'll get back to it next week, but here's, here's the deal. We have been saying to you that if you're up for the challenge of learning the names of your neighbors and hearing their stories... Uh, and, and, and practicing this, this artistry of neighboring, uh, we've invited you to send us the street that you're living on, and uh, we just sort of plotted it on a map to, to let you know you're not in this alone. So here's what it's looking like. Here's the larger area. We got Woodburn, Silverton, Sublimity, Independence, Mama, Dallas, and of course Salem. Uh, and we zoom in on Salem. You get a, a, kind of a, a, a look at um, who's been diving into this challenge. Now here's what I want to show you. We're going to zoom into a neighborhood in Kaiser this week, and I want you to see this. Because in this area, um, the Clear Lake area here, that there's 21 homes that have said, okay, I'm up for the challenge. I'm going to learn names of neighbors. I'm going I'm to start praying that I can engage in conversation, hear some stories. And the beautiful thing here is that as each of these, uh, these, these folks learn the names of their neighbors, you know, there's going to be over 160 different stories that are going to be heard, you're, you're gonna, names that are being learned. Um, and, and as you do take this risk, I was talking to someone this last week. They thought, okay, take the big risk. I'm going to go introduce myself to my neighbor. And when they walked across the street, introduced themselves to their neighbor, they realized that their neighbor went to St. Alliance. Uh, whew, there's one down. Uh, you didn't even know it. Your neighbor went to church with you. Um, and, uh, you know, but... It, I think you'll be surprised as, as you begin praying and reaching out and uh, learning uh, names of neighbors. There's stories they are gonna, they're gonna flow from this as we, in each of our neighborhoods, um, just take steps of faith and, and learn names and hear stories. Uh, I'm excited to, to hear what that looks like in the future. Thanks for engaging in that and for, uh, and for practicing this, uh, this gift of being an artist when it comes to, to neighboring. Uh, as Laura mentioned, we're in John chapter 6. She looked at the back half of John chapter 6. I'm going to look at the front half, um, this story of the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to read through those first 13 verses here in a, in a second. Uh, our culture is pretty obsessed with the concept of celebrity. Uh, we are impressed, uh, seemingly our culture, our society is seemingly impressed by people who are extraordinary or who do extraordinary things. We are attracted to big we, we, our attention is captured by people who, who seemingly are significant. And uh, we, we, we watch movies whose lives are, they, they're inspired, they inspire movies or, or books or films. And, and uh, we, our culture is pretty fascinated with celebrities. So imagine making a film about a, a just pick a man, he's married, has kids, um, he, he works during the week. He has, in, he has dinner with his family five nights a week. And the, the, the scene after scene of this is playing this out. Uh, and at night, he tucks his kids in. He prays for them. Uh, he gets up, goes to work. And, you know, when he comes back from work, he engages in conversation in his neighborhood. Uh, he's the kind of guy who lo he loans his, uh, his, his tools freely. He's, he's known to be talking in the neighborhood about life, about the news, about sports, about family. And the film keeps playing as this man faithfully and consistently just neighbors in his neighborhood. And if you went to that film and watched that, that scene after scene play out of this faithful, consistent guy who just, just is normal, you might come to the, the conclusion that that movie would be terribly boring. 
It'd be boring. I mean, come on, let's admit it. it we we want to see something exciting. We want to see something doing, uh, someone doing something that's, uh, that's shocking or surprising. Our movies do tell us, uh, inform us about what we value in our culture. We value the big splash. We, we value something that makes the headline news. Movies also tell us what we don't value. We don't value faithful, consistent living of a normal life that won't hit the front, in front page of the newspaper or you know, be on the front page of some uh, website. Uh, we, we don't value that so, so that when it comes to this, this whole art of neighboring, there might be something in us that's disinterested because, because it's not big. It's just sort of normal. And, and we, that just doesn't really grab our attention, perhaps. Here's the deal. If you are not consumed with the desire to live a life in such a way that your life inspires a movie... Or if, you, if you're not consumed or overwhelmed with the desire to, to make a name for yourself so that your name's on the front page of the newspaper, but if you're willing to live your life in such a way that it's just faithful and consistent, I want to tell you, I want to want, want you to know that if you, if you can live the faithful, consistent life in, in this area of the art of neighboring, I want to just share a simple truth with you that could unlock transformation. It can unlock transformation in your life. It can also unlock, unlock transformation in your neighbor's life. I mean, picture your neighborhood. Picture where you live. Picture where you work. Imagine a neighborhood, a, a workplace, transformed. I, this morning, I want to give you one simple truth that will not take your breath away. You will not say, say that again. I want, I want to get this. But... This one simple truth will unlock transformation. We talk about this vision that God has given to us of a city being at peace with God. That dream can become a reality if we embed this simple truth in our life. If we put legs to this. So you ready? Here's the simple truth. Small things matter. I told you it would knock you out, wouldn't it? (laughs) Small things matter. When you, in this area of neighboring, when you offer what little you have to those who work or live around you, something sacred happens. Now, I want to look at a story, this story in John chapter 6, and we're going to see this, this, this truth come to life. Now, some of you know this story very well. Some of you, this, this is the first time you've heard it. Now, that's okay. And you're going to see where something small makes a huge difference. Now, I'm going to work my way through this text and make some observations. And as I do that, here, here's what I want you to do. Randy, did this, Randy Shaw, who spoke last week, did this with us. And I think it's very important for us to ask ourselves this question as we gather together as family. We have worshiped on our own all week long. We have the privilege of joining together as family here at Sam Lines on the weekend. And we've come to encounter God, to be with each other and encounter God. So it's very important we're asking ourselves this question. What is Jesus saying to me? As I go through this, this text, I want you to have that question in your mind. Jesus, what are you saying to me? And then I want to tell you this. 
at any point as I'm talking, if you hear Jesus speaking to you, I give you full permission to ignore me. And I'm serious. Because I want you to hear clearly what Christ might be saying to you today. So that then you can meditate and reflect on that and ask him how he wants you to live in light of that. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna read through this, these first 13 verses. I'll hit the pause button every, every now and again. I'm gonna make five observations as we talk about neighboring and this powerful transformative truth that small things matter. John chapter six, verse one. Jesus feeds the 5,000. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Let's just stop right there and make our first observation. Here's our very first observation in this story as it relates to neighboring. We often feel that we're being asked to manage an impossible task. And put yourself in, in Philip's sandals for a second. Uh, you know, the, the disciples have been traveling with Jesus. There's huge crowds. Now, we'll see as we read through the story, we're not talking just, you know, 1,000. We're talking thousands upon thousands that are flocking to Jesus and, and wanting to see him do his miracles. And they've been, they've been hanging out with these thousands of people, and now Jesus has taken them off to a, to a place where they can just be with themselves. Uh, they can get some, some time in small group. And as they're meeting, the crowds find out where they're at, and they start moving towards Jesus. And one of the other gospels, we, we, we understand that when Jesus sees the crowd, that he's moved with compassion. And if you were here several weeks ago, that's that word, move with compassion, that, uh, that's a big word. We shortened it, called it splag. That's that, can't, that, that compassion that gets you all churned up inside. So Jesus has moved because these people have been hanging out with him, and they have been, uh, they have been just... Well, they've, they've been listening to him teach. Now they're going to go home. He's afraid they're going to faint along the way, so he's concerned about them. So Jesus says, hey, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? We're talking thousands upon thousands of people. And Philip replies by saying, even if we worked for months, even if we worked for a full year, we, we couldn't buy enough food to give everyone a bite I mean, Jesus, you're asking me to do something that's impossible. Now, Jesus, we, we know in the next, next verse there, Jesus is kind of messing with Philip, all right? Because he knows what he's going to do. But he's, he's looking to see how Philip is going to react. And I think that when it comes to not just this situation in John chapter 6, but many of the situations we, we encounter in life, and specifically as it relates to the art of neighboring, we often feel that we're being asked to manage an impossible ta task. Look, Steve, I'm, you're talking about getting to know my neighbors. I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't like engaging with people. I, my home is my sanctuary. I, 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 I'm shy. Or you don't know my neighbor. He's scary. 
You, you know, the, the situations that are dealing with in their lives, they, there's incredible, there's just, there's a lot of trauma in that family. How could God, how could he possibly use me to make a difference? We feel like we've been asked to do something that feels so big, so, so impossible. And that's exactly what Philip is facing here. How in the world, Jesus, or how in the world are we ever going to be able to buy bread to feed all these people? It continues in verse 8. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Hey, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Let's just stop there again. This is really an unusual insertion in the story. Thousands of people, it's already been stated by Philip, the bean counter, the realist, right? Because that's what we do. Look, you, you don't know my neighborhood. You don't know my situation. You, you don't know what, what, what I'm looking at here. And into this conversation, Andrew says, huh, here's a kid. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But how is that going to impact this huge crowd? This is sort of like, you know, uh, imagine yourself being the CEO of a nonprofit. Imagine yourself, you're, you're leading the way with a, a new entrepreneurial endeavor, and you've got your investors sitting around the conference table with you, and you've got a significant financial problem. You have a, a, a huge shortfall. Let's just say it's $50,000. $50,000 shortfall, and you're sitting around the table, and you're wondering, how in the world are we going to make up the difference here? And someone sitting at the table puts their hand in their pocket and pulls out five dimes and two nickels, puts it on the table, and says, well, you know, we got a $50,000 shortfall, but here's five dimes and two nickels. And your response is going to be, we have a $50,000 problem, not a 60-cent problem. What difference is that going to make? That, that's, that's what's happening here with Andrew. And by the way, you know, Andrew's got this kid. Notice he's got a sack lunch with him. And uh, this, this is kind of not only two things. It's, it seems a little rude, doesn't it? Hey, let's take this kid's lunch. <laughs> His mom has made lunch for him. Someone has thought ahead. Five barley loaves and two fish. Well, let's take that. Well, that leads us actually to our second observation. Small sacrifice can lead to a miracle. You know, it, in light of the thousands of people that are gathered, this small sacrifice, five barley loaves and, and two fish, doesn't seem like it's going to make a difference, but it can lead to a miracle. Now, I, I, I don't... I don't think Andrew stole the kid's lunch. It's somewhere in here. There, there, there's some permission given. And by the way, do you ever read a story like this and go, man, I wonder what happened to that kid? Did he become a follower of Christ? Was he there when the church started going in the book of Acts? Was he old and gray, 80 years old, sitting around the fire telling the story of how he gave his five, five barley loaves and two fish? I, I kind of just go that route sometimes, but text doesn't go there, but I, I, just, I just wonder. Somehow in this story, the, the five barley loaves and the two fish are, are put out there in a the mix, and then Jesus in verse, verse 10 says, tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, 
gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves, uh, who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Do you, do you ever just think about how that, that, that miracle happened? Five barley loaves, two fish, the kid gives his sack lunch, Jesus breaks it up, gives it to his disciples. I mean, did, did it just start raining loaves of bread? You know, like Dakota bread and cinnamon chip loaves of bread like from, from, from Great Harvest? Or, you know, that, that nine-grain loaf of bread, the Dave's Killer bread, they, they sell at different stores in town. Did, did it just start raining loaves of bread? Did it start raining trout, salmon, cod, halibut? I don't think so. But how did the miracle take place? How did this multiplication of five barley loaves and two fish get to the extent that it not only fed the thousands of people, but there were leftovers? Amazing results. How, how did this happen? I think it happened simply as Jesus broke bread, put it in his disciples' baskets, and as they went and started passing it out, that that is when, that's when they started getting involved in what Jesus was asking them to do, that's when the miracle took place. They'd hand a piece of bread and look back in their basket, there was more bread. They'd hand some fish and they look back in their basket and there's more fish. Which, it's our third observation. The miracle happens when we participate. See, we, sometimes we're tempted when it comes to the art of neighboring. I gotta do something big. I gotta, I gotta get a bouncy house, a clown, and put him in the cul-de-sac. No. I mean, if you wanna do that, that's up to you, but it's, I, I think it's the small, faithful, consistent, it's the small things that matter. And when we participate, I believe that's when the miracle happens. Mike Jarrett, who's on our staff, Mike leads the way of family life ministries and peacemakers and financial peace involved in several areas on our senior leadership team. Mike, um, you know, last week Randy was talking, gave us a great acronym for, for practical neighboring, the word bless, begin with prayer, listen to your neighbors, eat with them, uh, serve them, and share your story. It's a great way to practically begin living out the art of neighboring. Uh, Mike has been praying for his neighbors, and um, this last week, and Mike can verify the story because he's right over here. He'll stand up and shake his head no if I'm telling it wrong. Uh, Mike goes out to the sidewalk to get his trash container to, to bring it back to, to his house. And put the trash out. The, the, the trash company's come and picked it. The recycling company's come and picked it up. And now it's empty. Walks out to his trash uh, container to, to take it in. He's been praying for his neighbors. As he walks out there, his neighbor's also walking out to get his trash can to bring it into the house. So they engage in a conversation there on the sidewalk. And, and, and Mike's been, been praying for his neighbors. As they're engaged in conversation there on the sidewalk, uh, three young Mormon girls are walking up the street and they engage in a spiritual conversation with these two guys. And they begin asking questions. And along in, the, in, the, in this conversation that's taking place, one of them asks Mike, what, what does your faith look like for you? And, and Mike, by the way, this is... Slow pitch, step back, crack it. You know, this, this is one of those questions. Well, Mike just shares his testimony. 
He shares his testimony with these three young girls and, and his neighbor is standing there. The three young girls then move on down through the neighborhood and, uh, and there's Mike standing with his neighbor and his neighbor turns to him and goes, whoa, what a story. And, and Mike goes back to his house and he's just shared his testimony, his faith story with his neighbor that he's been praying that somehow God might use him to be able to impact him Spiritually. And since then, they've had another spiritual conversation. How'd that all happen? The miracle happens when we participate. You know, when we take the risk, when we, we just offer the small sacrifice that we have, it, it might be me making extra cookies, it might be um, you know, mowing lawn, it might be working so hard, you come, to, come home at the end of the day, you're exhausted, everything in you uh, wants to play the, the, the role of a mole, you know, the kind where you hit the garage door opener, you climb it, you just drive into your hole, and you hide. But there's that neighbor, and you, you choose to stop and engage in a 45-second conversation. It's just small, but it's on your mind, and you're participating in the art of neighboring. That's when the miracle happens, church. That's, that's when God does stuff that's surprising. It seems impossible, but a, a small sacrifice of time or cookies or kindness or whatever it is can lead to a miracle, and it takes place when we participate. Just small steps. Like it actually leads to the fourth observation, which is, which is this. The majority of lasting change in our lives comes through consistent, regular investment. This is true of, of much of our lives. It isn't just neighboring. It's true of like if you want to grow your life of prayer, it's, it's regular, consistent investment. It's the small thing done consistently and faithfully. September 6, 1995, the Baltimore Orioles were playing the California Angels. And this would be a very significant day, not only for the Orioles, but also for Major League Baseball. Not because the Orioles won a baseball game. It was a significant day because there was a certain individual playing in that game. His name was Cal Ripken Jr. And Cal Ripken Jr. was pursuing a record held by a guy named Lou Gehrig. He was known as the Iron Man. Gehrig had played in 2,130 straight games and it set this unseemingly unbreakable record of, of, of playing consecutive games. On that night, Ripken, if he plays the game, if his name goes on the roster and he plays through five innings, he will officially break that record. So when the fifth inning was over and, and Ripken was in the lineup, he's playing shortstop, when the fifth inning is over, the, the crowd that's gathered there, over 50,000 people stand at their feet and they start cheering and applauding. There's this, these four banners with these numbers on a warehouse building beyond right field. They've got 2,132-130 on it. At the end of the fifth inning, there's fireworks and epic music begins to play. The crowd is on their feet and the zero changes to a one. And now it says 2,131 consecutive games that Cal Ripken Jr. has played. He has just broken Lou Gehrig's record, and the place is going crazy. Ripken walks out. He tips his hat to the crowd. Everyone's cheering and clapping and, and, and screaming, and Ripken goes back into the dugout, and his players, his teammates, won't let him back in the dugout. They push him back out onto the field, 
And, and he, he does a victory lap in Camden Yards, the, the, the baseball field that they play at. He does a victory lap, and people are screaming for 22 minutes. The game comes to a grinding halt for 22 minutes. Why? He did not break the home run record. He did not set some new record for uh, runs batted in, RBIs in a season. He didn't set a batting average record. All he did was show up. He just showed up for 2,131 straight games. Now, in many of those games, he had a twisted ankle, a sprained knee, suffered from a common cold like you and I do, and he could have easily sat the bench. But he just showed up, and he took criticism. People said that he was hurting the team by pursuing this, this record of breaking this, this Iron Man record. But he's, he simply showed up for 2,131 straight games, and the crowd went crazy. They went crazy. And the majority of lasting change in our lives comes through consistent regular investment, or you could say, the majority of lasting change in our lives comes simply by showing up. You don't have to hit a grand slam. It, it might be a three-minute conversation on your lawn. It, it might be loaning sugar. It might be going with a neighbor who's grieving and going to them and just mourning with them or rejoicing with them because the child's been born. It's just the consistent, everyday showing up. The kind of stuff that's not gonna inspire a movie. It's not gonna be the headline on the paper. But that's the kind of neighboring that transforms your heart and your neighbor's heart. Which then leads to this, in this story, leads to this, not only the people being fed, but then there being 12 basketfuls of leftovers. I mean, there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers. We started with five Bartolos and two fish. And now we're looking for freezers. We have leftovers. Which makes, make this final observation. Small things have a way of adding up and producing disproportionately great results. See, I think, but for some of us, we say, I want to do something great. So we look for the big splash. But the profound truth is simply this. Small things matter. Great results come through small sacrifices. When we participate, the miracle happens. And at the end of the day, we may just go, whoa, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Now here's what I want to do. 